Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled Manifest Destiny. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the first slide Westward Expansion. Americans continued to expand westward in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. From 1841 to 1867, 350,000 men, women, and children journeyed to Oregon or California. They were seeking new land and opportunities, and had a widespread American belief that westward expansion was ordained by God. John O. Sullivan, the editor of the Democratic Review, referred to the idea as America's, quote, manifest destiny. He said, quote, to overspread and to possess the whole of the continent which Providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty. We are the nation of human progress, and who will, what can, set the limits on our march, end quote. There were two popular trails westward you should know about. The Santa Fe Trail stretched 1,000 miles from St. Louis to Santa Fe, which was then part of Mexico. Travelers went 12 to 14 miles per day, on a good day that is, and Indian attacks were common. It was used mostly by traders, not settlers, who traveled between Missouri and Mexico, and by the 1830s, so much trading between the two places occurred that the Mexican silver peso became the primary currency of Missouri. But the most famous route is the Oregon Trail. It stretched 2,000 miles from Independence, Missouri to Oregon. It was a brutal six-month trip, and contrary to popular myth, Indian attacks on wagon trains weren't that common, but death was. On average, there is one grave for every 80 yards. And how many of you have played the game Oregon Trail? I grew up with that, and I could never beat it. I always got sick and died, which is fairly accurate. Anyway, the route was used by mostly settlers who wanted to settle in either Oregon or California. Indians, British, and Americans already occupied the Oregon Territory. And if you may recall, the United States and Britain had agreed to a joint occupation of Oregon in 1818. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Expansion and Expulsion. As white Americans moved west, they came into contact with native tribes who lived on this land for centuries. Over time, these white settlers demanded state and federal government assistance in ethnically cleansing the areas, forcing Indian removal upon native tribes. One of these conflicts was the Black Hawk War in 1832. Sauk and Kickapoo tribal members sought refuge in Illinois and Wisconsin after harsh weather and wars with other Indian tribes had decimated them. They were led by a man called Black Hawk, who wanted to avoid bloodshed. But he was forced into a war by the Americans, and he successfully beat a frontier militia unit. However, later on, he lost a major battle at Bad Axe, where most of his band were captured or killed. This solidified the area west of Lake Michigan as open for white settlement, and it also gave a very young Abraham Lincoln a little bit of military service, though he never served in combat. Another tragedy I want you to know is the Trail of Tears. In 1838, 
18,000 Cherokees were forcibly removed from their homes and marched 1,000 miles to Indian Territory, which is in modern-day Oklahoma. 4,000 died from maltrition, exposure, cholera, and harsh treatment. Soldiers forced the march with rifles and bayonets. And this was not the first one to occur on this route. Earlier, 25% of Choctaws died en route to Indian Territory between 1831 and 1835. And 3,500 of the 15,000 member Creek tribe died during their removal in 1836. However, not all removal attempts were entirely successful, as we will see in Florida. The Seminoles were ordered to merge with their old enemy, the Creek, and be relocated to Indian Territory. These Seminoles refused because that was their land and because their old enemy, the Creek, had been slave owners and many Seminoles had escaped Creek slavery. The Seminoles waged a bloody guerrilla war called the Second Seminole War from 1835 to 1842, which left 1,500 U.S. soldiers dead and cost the U.S. government $60 million. This was one of the bloodiest Indian conflicts in U.S. history. Four-fifths, or 3,000 of the Seminole tribe, were forcibly removed to Oklahoma, but many survived by hiding in the Florida Everglades, and 4,000 still survive in Florida to this day. Now, I have a question for you. Are these lands empty out west? No. So what do you think is going to happen when new tribes are forced west and encounter new tribes? Well, they will be resented as newcomers, and they will also resent the U.S. presence in their lands, which will lead to conflict. Many of these western tribes, like the Sioux, the Cheyenne, and the Crow, would have violent confrontations with these new native newcomers, as well as the growing white settler population, which will culminate in the Indian Wars of the 1860s and 1870s. However, not every tribal story is one of exploitation and loss. A great example of this is the Comanche Empire, which was in modern-day northern Mexico, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and southern Colorado. From 1750 until 1877, the Comanche Empire dominated the political, military, and economic landscape of the Southwest. They were so powerful that they decimated northern Mexico with raids for horses and for slaves. The Mexican army could not beat them, which is one of the reasons why they asked for white Americans to come to Texas to help fight them. The Texas Rangers and the U.S. Army would try to stand up to them, but they were largely unsuccessful until the 1870s. But let's be clear, this is not a nice empire. Most are not. This empire prospered on slave labor from Mexico, from other Indians, and from white slaves, as well as the trading in stolen horses and getting plunder from war reigns. I will bring this up again, because we have to ask ourselves, how did the United States beat Mexico so easily in the Mexican-American War? And a leading reason is because northern Mexico was so decimated by the Comanche that it made it easier for the Americans to conquer the region. And as we will see, the peace treaty between the United States and Mexico had a specific provision that the U.S. Army had to protect Mexico from the Comanches and the Apaches, 
That is how powerful this Eight Empire was. Please advance to the next slide, entitled The Texas Revolution. Westward expansion had brought a lot of problems with Mexico. Mexico had been a Spanish colony, but got its independence in 1821 during Monroe's presidency. Texas was a part of Mexico's northern frontier, and in 1820, Texas contained only 2,000 Spanish speakers, with perhaps 40,000 Indians, including the Comanche and the Kiowa. The Mexican government wanted more people to settle there to secure Mexico's claim to it and to establish a buffer against U.S. expansion. And so, Anglo-Americans were initially welcomed there. Immigration from America into Mexican territory. Stephen F. Austin was an early colonizer whose village became a successful cotton colony. Austin was devoted to obeying Mexican laws. However, from the beginning, his colony had much more contact with the United States than with the rest of Mexico. And slavery was also a touchy issue in Mexico. Anglo-American colonists in Texas thought slavery was essential, but Mexico had either abolished slavery, which was practically non-existent there anyway, around 1824. Over time, lots of illegal Anglo-immigrants flocked to Texas as well. By the 1830s, Texas had a population of over 20,000 Anglos and only 3,000 Mexicans. So in 1830, the Mexican government forbade further American immigration and the importation of slaves into Texas. In response, the Anglos, led by Austin, agitated for reform, especially for the repeal of the law forbidding American immigration. In 1833, Austin went to Mexico City to argue for reforms, and the Texans eventually got much of what they wanted. However, Austin was jailed for over a year for writing a letter which criticized the Mexican government. Meanwhile, the independence movement back home was brewing. In 1835, a detachment of Mexican troops from San Antonio marched to the village of Gonzales and demanded that the Anglos hand over a cannon which they had been given for protection against the Indians. The Anglos refused, and a small skirmish broke out. The Texans responded by forming their own army, called the Army of the People, under the command of the former Tennessee congressman and governor, Sam Houston. This was the beginning of the Texas Revolution. The Mexican president, General Santa Anna, was determined to crush the revolt, and he marched 2,500 poorly trained and poorly supplied Mexican soldiers 600 miles north through the desert. In the meantime, the Texas army expelled the Mexican forces from San Antonio and occupied the old fortified mission called the Alamo. On February 23, 1836, Santa Ana's army entered San Antonio and demanded that the Alamo's troops surrender. Houston had departed to mobilize relief forces, so the defense of the mission was led by Jack Bowie, William Travis, and Davy Crockett. In response to the surrender demand, 150 Texans inside answered Santa Ana by firing a cannon. Mexican artillery then bombarded the fort for 12 days, reducing its walls to rubbles. On March 6, Mexican forces assaulted the heavily fortified fort, and after about an hour of fighting, all the Texans inside were dead. Perhaps 600 Mexicans died in this strategically unimportant assault, and four days earlier, 
on March 2nd, the Texans had declared their independence from Mexico. One tragic event occurred after the Alamo. From March 20th to the 22nd, 350 Texan soldiers surrendered to the Mexicans because they were promised treatment as prisoners of war. But on March 27th, Santa Ana ordered their executions. The remaining Texan forces would remember the Alamo and these executions. But where was Sam Houston in all of this? Well, when he heard about the Alamo's defeat, he ordered a retreat to East Texas. And on April 21st, Houston's forces, which numbered 900 men, surprised Santa Ana near San Jacinto River. In the battle that followed, almost all of the 1,300 Mexicans were either killed, captured, or sent fleeing in only 20 minutes of fighting. Santa Ana fled but was captured the next day and was forced to sign peace treaties promising the following. First, Mexican soldiers would leave Texas for good and repay what they had destroyed. Second, Mexico would officially recognize Texas's independence. Third, Texas's southern border would be at the Rio Grande River, even though Mexican Texas' southern border had always laid at the Nueces River. And this would be lead to a major problem down the road. On May 14, 1836, both treaties were signed. And so Texas became an independent country, the Lone Star Republic. But the first act of the new Mexican president was to reject all of the treaties signed by Santa Anta. Losing Texas had been a huge blow to the country that was already in political and financial turmoil. Many Mexicans wanted to raise an army and reconquer Texas, but they were too broke to do so. Mexico refused to recognize Texas's independence. And going forward, Texas also struggled financially and had its own belligerents who wanted another war with Mexico. And Texas assumed that they would be annexed by the United States. But for nine years, the Americans said no. Northern Whigs did not want to add a new territory that they assumed would become a slave state. And many Democrats, including Jackson and Van Buren, wanted to avoid bringing the divisive issue of slavery back before Congress. Regardless, many Americans, including future President Tyler, supported Manifest Destiny. Please advance to the next slide entitled 1844 Presidential Campaign. The two frontrunners for the party's nominees were Henry Clay of the Whigs and Martin Van Buren of the Democrats, both of whom opposed Texas annexation. Van Buren's position on Texas upset most Southern Democrats, who blocked his nomination at the Democratic Convention and ensured the nomination of the dark horse candidate James K. Polk. Polk was the former Speaker of the House and the Tennessee Governor, as well as a devoted expansionist. He ran a campaign to, quote, re-annex Texas, since he claimed it had already been in the United States since the Louisiana Purchase. He also promised to reoccupy Oregon. And lastly, he promised to serve only one term. Polk defeated Clay in a very close election. He won New York State by just 36,000 votes. And in fact, the third-party candidate James Burney, who ran on the Liberty Party platform, had won 16,000 votes in New York, which threw the state for Polk and ensured his elections. And there are some historians who speculate that if Henry Clay had won, there would never have been a Mexican-American war, 
or the Civil War, but I don't really buy one of history. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Prologue to War. Congress finally voted to annex Texas in the spring of 1845, and Texas accepted in July. Mexico had announced publicly that it would view the U.S. annexation of Texas as an act of war, and Mexico broke off diplomatic relations with the United States, and the Mexican minister to D.C. was sent home. The United States sent a minister plenipotentiary named John Slidell to Mexico anyway, and his instructions were twofold. To assert that Texas's border was at the Rio Grande River, and to offer to buy Texas, New Mexico, and California for $25 million. The Mexican government predictably refused to receive him, so Polk decided to force the issue. Polk ordered General Zachary Taylor, a future U.S. president, whose troops were already stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas, which was inside disputed territory. He had them move to the mouth of the Rio Grande, and also ordered a U.S. naval squadron to move towards Veracruz, Mexico. Mexican generals on the opposite side of the Rio Grande told Taylor he had 24 hours to move back across the Nuces, and Taylor predictably refused. Taylor and Polk wanted to provoke the Mexicans into war, so on April 25, 1846, the Mexicans attacked U.S. troops on the Rio Grande, killing or wounded 16 and capturing 63. As a result, Polk asked for a declaration of war. In his war message to Congress, he stated, quote, The cup of forbearance has been exhausted, even before the recent information from the frontier of the Rio Grande. But now, after reiterated menaces, Mexico has passed the boundary of the United States, has invaded our territory, and shed American blood on American soil. She has proclaimed that hostilities have commenced and that the two nations are now at war. Thus, on May 13, 1846, the United States officially declared war on Mexico, which began the two-year Mexican-American War. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Mexican-American War. Mexico was not ready for war, and most Mexican officials knew they had no chance of winning. Their troops were poorly trained conscripts and had little supplies. There was also rebellion within Mexico at the start of the war, and Santa Ana, who had been in exile, came back to power for a time. Rumors circulated that several Mexican states were going to declare independence and ask the United States for protection. And despite the declaration of war, many Americans did not support this. Famously, the future Civil War general Ulysses S. Grant wrote, quote, Generally, the officers of the army were indifferent whether the annexation of Texas was consummated or not, but not so for all of them. For myself, I was bitterly opposed to the measure, and to this day regard the war which resulted as one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation. It is an instance of the Republic following the bad example of European monarchies, and is not considering justice in their desire to acquire additional territory. Abraham Lincoln a Whig congressional representative from Illinois voted against the war, but did later vote to supply U.S. soldiers. But Ralph Waldo Emerson put it best when he predicted, quote, Mexico will poison us. In the war, there were two main U.S. invasion forces. Zachary Taylor's army of 5,000 men fought and defeated Santa Ana's army of 15,000 men in the north, 
while Winfield Scott's army of 12,000 landed south of Veracruz in March 1847 and attacked from the east. Scott's army marched westward, along essentially the same path that Hernan Cortez's conquistadors had marched 328 years earlier. Robert E. Lee was on Scott's personal staff and served as the general's eyes, scouting topography and looking for ways to advance against the enemy. Americans were often outnumbered in battles, but had superior weaponry and supplies. Battles included many successful bayonet charges by American troops, and American victories inspired gloating and racism. The Democratic Review wrote in early 1847, quote, The Mexican race now see their own inevitable destiny. They must amalgamate and be lost in the superior vigor of the Anglo-Saxon race, or they must utterly perish, end quote. In August of 1847, Scott's army began a siege of Mexico City, and during the campaign, Robert E. Lee carried out dangerous reconnaissance across craggy lava fields. Scott called Lee's crossings, quote, the greatest feat of physical and moral courage performed by any individual to my knowledge, end quote. In September, Scott rode into Mexico City and accepted the city's surrender, but the war dragged on. The Mexican government relocated 100 miles north of the city and weighed its options. Mexican officials' greatest fear was of a class conflict, which was already ravaging the country, and would get even worse if the war with the United States dragged on. So in January of 1848, they began peace negotiations. As a result, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed in early February, and it contained the following provisions. First, Mexico recognized the Rio Grande as Texas's southern border. Second, the United States would assume all of the debts that it claimed Mexico owed its citizens. Third, the United States would pay $15 million for all of the territory above the modern Mexican border, and that is Arizona, California, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, West Texas, and parts of Colorado and Wyoming. So as a result, Mexico lost 55% of its territory. And I want to make one note here. In Article 11 of the treaty, it stipulates that the U.S. government will protect Mexican territory from, quote, savage Indian tribes. In addition, the United States will not accept any captive from Indian slave traders, and the U.S. will not buy any stolen property from the tribes that were taken from Mexican territory. This is all about the Comanche Empire. They are so strong that this treaty between Mexico and the United States stipulates the U.S. will protect Mexican land and not acquire goods stolen from her borders. And again, this shows the power of the Comanche Empire. The United States Congress approved the treaty in March, and Polk signed it on July 4th. Earlier that morning, he had helped dedicate the marble cornerstone of what would become the Washington Monument. And these two events, on the same day, suggested to many in the United States that they were special and would have a bright future. But they did not understand the poisoned pill that they had just swallowed. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Consequences of War. There were numerous consequences as a result of the Mexican-American War. First, the casualties. 
the war left 13,780 Americans dead, though fewer than 1,800 were killed as a result of combat. Most of the deaths were due to dysentery and sunstroke. By comparison, 25,000 Mexicans died, with some estimates suggesting twice as many. Second, the combat experience of many U.S. soldiers. Many American junior officers in Mexico, including Robert E. Lee, U.S. Grant, George B. McClellan, Thomas J. Jackson, Jeff Davis, Braxton Braggs, and others, 13 years later, would serve as generals in the American Civil War. But the lessons they learned in Mexico would later prove disastrous. The glorious bayonet charges that worked in Mexico did not work in the American Civil War against defenders with rifled muskets. The third consequence is the Mexican Cession, which gave lots of new territory to the United States, and as I said before, included the modern states of Arizona, California, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, and parts of West Texas, Colorado, and Wyoming. Thus, the continental United States was now essentially in place, a land from sea to shining sea. The fourth consequence of the war is that it brought the issue of the expansion of slavery back into Congress, as the country would have to decide if the newly acquired territory would be slave or free. And this is illustrated in August 1846, when the obscure Pennsylvania Congressman David Wilmont attached a proviso to a war funding bill. And it stated, quote, As an express and fundamental condition of the acquisition of any territory from the Republic of Mexico, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall ever exist in that part of said territory, end quote. Well, so much for keeping the divisive issue of slavery out of Congress. Now, this proviso passed the House, but it did not pass in the Senate. And do you think that David Wilmot is doing this out of the goodness of his heart for African Americans? No. Wilmot publicly stated, quote, I plead the cause and the rights of white freemen. I would preserve to free white labor a fair country, a rich inheritance, where the sons of toil of my own race and color can live without the disgrace which association with Negro slavery brings upon free labor. End quote. Again, this illustrates the racism of Northerners towards Black Americans as well. And with slavery's expansion back in politics, we will see a new political party, the Free Soil Party, rise. Northerners did not want slavery in the territories, and this fight will dominate the politics of the 1850s. The fifth consequence of the war were new racial issues. To this day, the West is the most racially and ethnically diverse region of the United States. And when the United States took the Mexican Cession, it contained numerous different peoples, Latinos of various nationalities, Asians, Pacific Islanders, Chileans, Native Americans, and African Americans. And the government had a question. What do you do with these people? Do you make them citizens? Do you rule over them? How does that work? There were at least 100,000 Spanish-speaking Mexican citizens who lived in the newly acquired territory. 
most chose to remain in the United States, where they would supposedly be given full citizenship rights in the future. However, American whites lumped Mexicans, blacks, and Native Americans together as inferiors. In the ensuing years, many Mexicans lost their titles to their land in U.S. courts. Except for those of lighter-skinned Spaniards from Europe who intermarried with American whites in order to keep their land and became large ranch owners. Well, many Americans have been used to a white and black binary, but now they have to figure out what to do with all these other races. And how will they approach this? With pseudo-racial science, with eugenics, and other discredited methods. Does anyone know anything about the study of phrenology? It's the discredited study of skulls. And literally, Americans engaged in skullduggery, the digging up of thousands of Native American graves in order to study the skulls in hopes of finding a link between race and physical features. Americans created a series of pseudo-racial sciences, trying to figure out race, and these ideas were transplanted and disseminated by the American Eugenic Society. This society wrote many tracts on race that influenced numerous Americans and Europeans, and their lessons informed writers like Madison Grant, who published the book The Passing of the Great Race, which emphasized the use of eugenics to destroy non-Aryan races in people with physical disabilities. In the 1920s, a young corporal was in jail in Germany for staging a coup, and he was in the midst of writing a book and wrote a letter to the head of the American Eugenics Society in Grant, telling them, quote, this book is my Bible. And he stated that if he ever became leader, he would implement its program. And so there is a literal direct line between American pseudo-racial science and Adolf Hitler. You cannot make this shit up, people. So remember, saying stupid hurtful things has repercussions because you never know when some crazy person will take it seriously and follow up on it. The sixth consequence was the continued instability in Mexico. A bloody civil war took place from 1858 to 1861, after which the French invaded and caused more problems. The Mexicans would eventually emerge victorious, but at great cost. The seventh consequence, and related to the sixth, is the damaged relations between the United States and Latin America, who viewed the United States as an arrogant, aggressive power. We tend to think of Mexico and Latin America as unstable, but we directly contribute to this. We invade, we start coups, we fund rebels, we start civil wars, we install dictators. So if you want to understand modern immigration issues, it all goes back to a series of armed interventions over the last hundred plus years. This is blowback, people. When you intervene abroad, it has long-term consequences. And see my US2 course for more on that front. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The California Gold Rush. Roughly 200 hours after signing the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, gold was discovered in California at a place called Sutter's Mill. The men who discovered gold brought it to the local army post to be confirmed. 
and the commander of that post sent for a junior officer with more experience. And that man's name was William Tecumseh Sherman, the man who would one day make Georgia howl. Sherman confirmed it was gold, but also called on a slave who had worked in Georgia's gold mines after gold had been discovered there in the 1830s, which, by the way, was also part of the impetus for Indian removal. That slave confirmed what Sherman had thought, and news quickly spread of the discovery. The gold fields became a mosaic of races. Most of the early diggers were non-white. They were Californios, Mexicans, Chileans, Hawaiians, and Peruvians. And these miners are called 48ers. Most of the white Easterners came a year later, the more famous 49ers, since they had to come by boat around the tip of South America, which took time. And the Chinese came a few years later, in part due to gold, but also due to internal unrest in China. California grew exponentially. In 1848, there were 14,000 people. By 1850, it had 100,000 people. But there was a problem. The newly arrived whites labeled the non-whites as lazy and sought to drive them out of the gold fields. Whites also physically and economically harassed the Chinese and forcibly expelled many Latinos. There were roundups, assaults, lynchings, and organized hunts. The surviving non-whites were segregated into ghettos, and then whites passed laws so these groups could not own property or take part in certain economic arenas, which lasted for generations. The plight of Native Americans was particularly pronounced. In 1840, there had been 150,000 Natives in California, with other estimates suggesting 300,000 Natives there. By 1880, only 30,000 Native Americans survived in California. And this is using very conservative estimates. Historians can prove fairly conclusively that over a 20-year period, 20,000 Indians were murdered by vigilantes, not counting other deaths. In addition, birth rates plummeted as Native society was upended. Women were raped, were given STDs, and could not bear children. The historian Elliot West, who teaches here at the University of Arkansas is one, and is one of the most premier historians of the American West, calls this episode, quote, bloodier California, compared with bleeding Kansas, who's, who, as we will see, had less than 400 deaths in the 1850s. He and others argue that this is the greatest period of lynchings in American history, and it took mass violence by whites to racially order the West under white supremacy. Please advance to the next slide entitled California Gold Rush Part 2. Many of you have heard of the Gold Rush, but you probably don't understand how massive it was. It was the second widest social disruption of the antebellum era, besides the Civil War. Every community experienced the departure of settlers, and entire families were broken by it. Letters home and newspaper accounts were widely publicized. It tantalized the American imagination, but it often sold an image rather than the truth. Failed gold seekers returned home in droves, filled with stories and STDs. The memory of the gold rush lives on in popular culture, but again, it is a very narrow view. 
when you think of the gold rush, what do you envision? Right, a panhandler looking for gold in the river by himself. But in reality, it took tens of thousands of mine workers using water hoses to blast away earth and rock, looking for veins of silver and gold, and it produced an environmental catastrophe on a massive scale. And in the end, it did not create individual wealth, but corporate wealth. The ones who made money are those feeding, clothing, and supporting miners, not by being one yourself. There's one last implication of the gold rush we need to consider. With the discovery of gold, the richest part of the country is now the furthest from the seat of power. And there were very real worries about some other power trying to take California or the territory declaring independence. So how do you maintain control? First, you get the army there quick. And second, you build a telegraph, an intercontinental railroad, as quick as possible to connect the country. And these will become the pet projects of the Republican-controlled Congress during the American Civil War. Well, that is all I have for you today. I hope that you are all staying safe, making smart decisions, and washing your hands. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.